Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by award-winning writer, commentator, and speaker, Derek Clifton, a Chicago-based freelance journalist and writer whose work focuses on the intersections of identity, culture, and social issues. Clifton's reporting and opinion writing has appeared at NBC News, Vox, Verut, Windy City Times, Out, Chicago Reader, and various other news outlets. He holds two degrees from Northwestern University, including an MSG from the Medill School of Journalism. He's an avid volunteer and has served on boards for scholarship organizations, education nonprofits, and causes serving LGBTQ people. Derek, who identifies as queer and gender fluid, is working on a memoir aimed at helping readers understand the uniquely beautiful yet turbulent coming-of-age experiences for queer and gender-variant people of color. He believes it takes all kinds to elevate awareness of intersectionality in media and mainstream culture, and it's been the blessing of his life to help advance a Black, queer, and feminist perspective. In 2018, at just 29 years of age, Derek received the Esteem Award for Future Leaders, the Outstanding Millennial Award. Upon receiving the award, Derek said, this award touches me not only because of the affirmation, but because it's coming from my community. Derek, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Doing all right, Michelle. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. You know, we met, I guess, a little over a year ago at the Esteem Awards where you were one of the award winners. And, you know, the Esteem Awards and Phil Esteem is somebody who's near and dear to my heart. And it's like we feed each other people. Like he'll say, oh, this person is really great. And that person is really great. And... What he said about you, I mean, he's, he's been very thoughtful about including people at the younger end of the spectrum because often people want to, you know, don't recognize what they're doing. And people are doing, like, amazing, amazing things at all period of time. And you received your award and because you're an award-winning writer, 
you're a commentator, you speak on many issues. How did it feel to you when you got that call from Phil about this award? Oh, my God. Uh, to be honest, it was it was completely unexpected, but it, it came at a, at a very, very good time. Um, you know, I, I had to take a step back from journalism for a good bit uh, because it was, it, it got to be exhausting, um, you know, writing about being, you know, at the intersections of my identities as mm-hmm. black, as queer, as gender non-binary, um, as a person with a disability, you name it. And also in the process, not only writing from my own experience, but also reporting about the experiences of many folks at various intersections of identity, it really, it really took a toll on me once the election closed and mm-hmm. as we entered into a new era. And I, I had to take a, a step back and say, okay, if, if this is my area of, you know, where I focus on in terms of reporting or, you know, commentating, can I do this every day, knowing mm. full well what is on the, the table? Every single day, there's going to be something that is going to take me away from doing the deeper digging as to what needs to be done. I just said, okay, I need to just take a deep breath and figure myself out. So when I got that call, it came at a time where I was easing back on in. Mm-hmm. And... And, and it and it and honestly, it, it took me back in a very emotional way because it was like, you know, the the awards from news organizations, you know, you know, it means a lot, but it's something else when your own community, when your black LGBT community sees and feels that effort, mm-hmm. and to know that you're not alone. It meant so much. Mm-hmm. Now, but now you went to Northwestern. You have a degree in journalism. What got you? As I mean, how early did you get that bug to journalism for journalism to write? It was an accident. <laughs> <laughs> to be mm-hmm. It was such an accident. Um, you know, for me. I had grown up around black political activism, um, seeing that in action through church. And of course, that's a, that's a experience that is shared in, in many black communities around the country. Black churches is a site of, of activism, a site of organizing, of social awareness in many ways that, Unfortunately, our education system in this country is not equipped or hasn't been equipped yet or is coming to be more equipped to do in terms of teaching people black history and and what it means to be us as a people, not just the struggle or not just that little footnote the civil rights movement they include in most textbooks, but the broader Mm -hmm. spectrum of things. And I think for me, once, you know, I, I did high school policy debate and became very attuned to what was going on in the news, 
um, to different thought experiments for how problems could be solved either locally or nationally or globally. And the reason why I took to that activity as an extension of my upbringing was because it was where I felt the most freedom to be myself. There are so many of us, whether or not we were the popular kids or the misfits, I was more on the latter end of that, <laughs> um, that got together and just thought about creative ways we could advocate for different issues. And sometimes we have to advocate against things we actually like because that's how debate works. But mm-hmm. going from that in high school and the college, you know, it was for me a real culture shock growing up in Chicago and being in a black neighborhood that wasn't even majority black at first. White flight happened. That that's the name of the game. But going from a from a black neighborhood to uh, you know a high school that had a demographic that reflected the diversity of Chicago as a whole to going to a college where in my in my class, my freshman class, there were only 81 black freshmen out of 2,000-plus freshman students on that campus. Wow. I mean, you know, that, that's incredible, you know. 81 P. I mean, that's, that's not even 1%, yeah. You know? mm. Yeah, not even 1%. And, and, and so it was from the moment I stepped foot on that campus until the moment I left that I began to understand what it is I need to continue doing with that voice. And for the most part, I thought it was going to be activism, working with nonprofits, working with student organizations, trying to bring people together. And the longer I was trying to do that, the more brick walls I ran into. And I know this is probably, you know, familiar experience for you and I can only imagine what it felt like over the years because it just seemed like no matter where I turned on campus I was getting pushback from not all of but certain elements of community of color on LGBT issues but Mm -hmm. more than that was pushback from the LGBT community or a very specific subset of it that did the activism work on campus to addressing issues and including people of color. And that's when I was like, Do it, does anyone ever even see other people like me on this campus or know what our experiences are? And I said, okay, time to write. And just fell into it and wrote a column for the school newspaper and, you know, and just continue from there, just writing about, not only the world from my own experience, but also getting out and talking to other people and hearing from them as to what it was like to be them on a campus like the one we were on. And, and before I graduated, we, more people started to organize together and realize that the more we communicate across those lines of difference, and understand where there aren't as many silos, but there is much more of a spectrum that 
it's actually better for the whole. So that's the energy I took from the college writing and opinion writing experience to my professional life. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's something that, that I always find interesting, and particularly you were in a, a unique place. Okay, first of all, you know, they're like, you know, like since there were 81 in your class, but often when you're black, and you remember the LGBTQ community, there's that part where, you know, first of all, it's like people want to take your black card away from you because you're gay. But then the larger white gay community is looking at you to be like all things black. And, you know, you're sort of like in this place where you want to say, no, I'm me, this is what the black gay experience is about, and you didn't turn in either card. How did you, how, did you feel like that's sort of like wasteland or like having to like sort of stand up and shout and say, no, look at me, this is who I am, this is who we are for the people that you were writing about, whose stories you were sharing? Absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it, it just felt like left and right, whether it was writing about an issue on campus or writing about an issue, you know, in the local community we're in, um, or even looking at the national picture, it felt as though oftentimes I was pleading with my peers to be seen as equally human. Mm. And in some ways pleading with the institution or with various powers that be on that campus. I, I remember even going to classes sometimes and having to deal with icy instructors who had read my stuff and having to just live, be living proof that their preconceived ideas, their stereotypes, their you know, seeing me in the hallway and being like, hello, good morning, because I got a lot of that sometimes too, the whole sassy black mm-hmm. gay friend type mm-hmm. of typecasting. And I just was like, or, or even like there was one time even in my fraternity house where I was eating fried chicken and a white passing Hispanic guy makes a comment about it. And I'm like, dude, why don't you just eating you and like, a good chunk of this fraternity literally took a special trip before doing your homework a couple nights ago over the chicken shack and came <laughs> back and y'all eating it in the front. I'm like, did I say anything to y'all? No. Well, then can I have my damn fried chicken in peace? <laughs> and I don't have to write about that because it happened around the same time as Mary J. Blige had the crispy chicken commercial of Burger King. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> Uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm. <laughs> but that was one example of like, can I just eat my fried chicken in peace and mm-hmm. not have to explain cultural stereotypes? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. I mean, it is, it's just a like, you know, or, or you know what, the other one that would often get me, it's like then you would have particularly when a black church would do it and someone would come up to you and go like, well, what about those black churches? And it's like, 
what, you know? I cannot right. explain each and every one of them for you, you know. Uh, um, did you ever feel that once you, you took on that role, that then you were also put in another silo that, okay, Derek, this is going on. Surely you have an opinion about this, or surely you have to talk about that, or something happened that, uh, you know, the paper or someplace is going to come to you and expect you to, you know, just dive right in there. And did that keep you from exploring other things that you were interested in? You know, it, it was an experience of being put in a box of mm-hmm. you're the opinion person. You're opinionated. <laughs> you have thoughts about everything. You think you know it all, don't you? And it was like, well, no, I don't. And, in fact, sometimes I'm wrong, like anybody is. Mm-hmm. Again, pleading for my humanity. And, 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 and to be seen and understood for who I am and what I experienced also, and also to be seen as Derek as, hey, yeah, you have this idea about me because, you know, I'm, I'm from the south side, like, of Chicago, and there's this one guy I met at a party who was like, oh, 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 you, oh, you're from the south side, so you must have gone to one of those little storefront churches. I said, excuse <laughs> me? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I haven't even given you a, you haven't even asked me much about who I am before our Mackie making an assumption. And I'm like, and, and guess what? There are plenty of storefront churches where the choir is good, the after-service the after food is on point, everything is in good working order in more ways than some of these wretched institutions that are out here taking the money from poor folks and financing a, a, somebody's Brooks Brothers suit on TV. But we, mm-hmm. I wasn't going to go there at that party. I just said my piece and kept it moving. And got my drink. But I was also also put in that box, whether or not I was in class or whether or not I was just trying to chill. So to be quite honest with you, I got the hell off of that campus as much as I could and hung out with students, queer students of color that were going to school in the city itself, in Chicago, because the Western, you know, the undergraduate campus is in suburb, it's in, it's in, it's in, suburb, it's in Evanston. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it feels like this bubble. And I just knew from my own experience of living and growing up in Chicago that this is not how life is, and it's not how life is going to be. So I had to get out of there regularly as much as I could so that I wouldn't lose that part of myself. Was it ever like, though, when you went home, back to the south side, was there ever like a moment of reentry where you did realize that how some of that stuff that you were dealing with and, and navigating had in some ways affected you and, for lack of a better word, maybe in some ways even changed you, that when you got back home on the south side, you sort of looked and you went like, hmm, you know, you, you saw a different perspective? Absolutely, and and there there were times even where 
going back home would be a check on me in, in, a, in a way that I needed. You know, because this is, I went, I went to college, I started college when the Great Recession began. Mm-hmm. So my entire economic situation just went all the way in the other direction. Um, you know, for whatever that means, it just, if, if we were already trying to do our best to hold on and take care of each other and, and be able to afford what we could and, and help, you know, anybody else in the family, it was just like, now we all out here. And, you know, I'm, you know, holding on to any merit-based scholarship I could to, continue attending school, the pressure to keep the grades up and be able to find, you know, internship work that was paid or a summer job or something to do that would keep me out of my parents' pocket mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. pressure enough. And it wasn't something I talked about on campus, being around a bunch of students who talked about, going on vacation with, with six-bedroom rental homes on the lake houses and stuff like that that their parents owned or a family friend owned. And one time I got invited to go to one of those, and I was the only black person around. So I was looking around like, this is how the other half lives, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know about this. Mm-hmm. But the, I, was, I, I was the palatable, the acceptable Negro to those folks. I had to learn that early. And the less I fit into that, the, you know, the less I saw those kinds of environments. There was a, there was a price to be paid. So going mm-hmm. home, I felt oftentimes just talking about this stuff, just like I'm talking about with you, I would hear stories from years past from my grandmother, rest her soul, or from my uncle or from a cousin, even one that was around my age, that would bring me back to center and remind me that, yeah, you're on that campus. They got that, you know, the education that you you go in there for, you need to have a chance out here. But don't forget yourself and don't forget what it took for you to be in this position to get there, even with what you're dealing with. I have to be reminded mm-hmm. that often mm-hmm. to stay centered mm-hmm. and to keep going. You know, once I talked to Kathy Cohen, who's at University of Chicago, and I had a family member who went to the University of Chicago, and he would say how it was like you never had an off day. When you walked in that classroom, they always knew your name. You knew you were going to get called on. You knew you needed, you, you know, there wasn't like I skipped, forgot about reading that page. You had to stay up on it. And when I was talking to Kathy, and she said, I bet they've never come back here again. I said, no. And she said, it's often she had heard from students from, from who had been like, you know, one of 80-something of, of 2000, and that that, condition, that that situation, going through that, even though they hung in there and graduated 
it was like they just wanted to never, ever, ever be in that situation again, and they didn't come back. And did you ever have that moment like, okay, I'm going to get this degree, and I am I'm going to just keep it moving and never look back? Well, um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to be honest. Like, the day I graduated, and I'm even getting teary thinking about it, um, the day I graduated and saw my parents after graduation, I just fell into their arms and cried. Mm. Sorry, excuse me. <laughs> That's not the allergies that... That, mm-hmm. those, those are good, these are good tears, I promise. Um, mm-hmm. Because for me, it was, it, I knew I wasn't only accomplishing my own dream. Mm-hmm. I knew that that was a day they had lived and worked to see too. And so did my grandparents and other people in the family and in the community that that were extending encouragement and support wherever they could to say, keep going, keep going. But nothing could have prepared me. Actually, let me say nothing could have prepared me. Let's just say I did not, I wasn't fully aware that that experience I had on that campus was in many ways be reflective of the world I was going to step into after I left. Mm-hmm. And that my upbringing from then until high school, in so many ways, was preparing me for that in ways I could never have understood. Mm-hmm. But I was insulated, for the most part, from having to be in such an overwhelmingly not diverse environment mm-hmm. <laughs> to the point where when I was confronted with that reality, it was like, whoa, just like I'm pretty sure for a student who had never, ever attended any kind of, you know, institution where there were that many black students, as few of us as there were in my, in my freshman class, they were probably like, whoa, y'all are here. You know, <laughs> so uh-huh. honestly, once I left, I wanted to, I was intentional about trying to find opportunities where, I could work and live and see people like me and and not and not only need to be black folk or need to only be LGBT folk or both, yes, we gotta be there. But at the same time mm-hmm. I, just, I wanted to I wanted to see the world and live in color. In, in the many colors. And I and I, I wanted to have hold out some hope that perhaps the change I was starting to see on my campus by the time I graduated, that that would continue and that the world I was entering as professional, that the pace was the same. And ultimately, again, reality struck. It, what the, the, the marathon was not over, and it still isn't some now seven years since I've graduated from college. Mm -hmm. So while I've wanted to sometimes say, you know what, I've had enough of it, threw it by, 
I've had to just know when to take the moment to take a deep breath and just get myself together and keep it moving. Well, at that point, we're going to take a brief break, and we're going to get into your career and you and how you affected your career. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and my guest today is Derek Clifton. Now, you worked as an identity and culture columnist, and you also identify as male, gender fluid, and non-binary. Was your, did that, like, as you identify did that sort of push you into that role, or was it in, in part as you were discovering and learning more about yourself, your gender fluidity, and, and that, that sort of took you into almost like not only were you writing about it, but you were learning more about that and seeing that in the community? Yes. <clears throat> and, um, excuse me. Um, You know, I think one of the things that I learned over time growing up that I had to develop language for as time went on mm-hmm. was that being assigned male at birth, you know, linking genitalia with a, an entire set of values, duties, responsibilities, even stereotypes or labor roles, you name it. And it being in many ways a governor of how I have to move through the world of how I have to how I can and cannot express myself that's one thing and then you layer on top of that being black we already know what that means it means you're mm-hmm. going to have a parent who is afraid of how you're perceived walking out the door and having an encounter with the police or how you're, you might be treated at the grocery store or how you might be regarded if you walk in a, a certain neighborhood the wrong time of day. And you lay on top of that being gay. Now it's 
okay, you better watch that. You need to get some more bass in your voice. Hmm. You need to watch how you walk. Maybe you should get a girlfriend. At least when they suspect that they don't know yet, but when they have that inkling idea or you're in middle school or whatever that you might be a little different, then it, it turns into the whole idea that they now have to police your gender in a different way that adds on to the fact that you are black. In so many ways, I had to learn just how layered gender is with race, sexuality, with class, you name it. And and having to recognize at the same time that because I moved through this world and, and seen as male and, and understood as male based on how I've been assigned, based on my poly makeup is, was determined, you know, that whole male equals man thing is what I'm talking about here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I just had to come to the realization that, all of that messiness, all of that complexity was going to mean something different for me and that I had to figure out my own way of navigating it. But what did that mean? Was there a label for it? To be quite honest, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I, I knew myself that, you know, I just, I just chalked it up to just me being gay. But at the same time, I knew there was something deeper there, and to be quite honest with you, it was being in community with my friends during college, friends of mine who were all over, were black and brown and all over the spectrum in terms of gender and sexuality, who kind of gave me the nudge and just was like, we see how you act in certain environments. They would call me off a code switching. Mm-hmm how I am when I'm with them and how I am when I'm, when I'm in other spaces. And they're like, we just want to stay. They're like, we just want to see Derek be Derek. And for you not to have to contort and twist all the time into this idea of what you think everybody else is expecting of you in terms of being a man, quote, unquote, being a black mm-hmm man, called being a black gay man, so to speak, that gender element was the missing link. And so I ended up exploring that just through drag on campus in college. Mm-hmm. And, and to be quite honest, it, it really, for me, it ended up being, one of my, my best at the time just told me, like, you know, try doing the amateur drag show thing. I think it'll be worth its weight in gold for you. <laughs> and I didn't mm-hmm. understand what she meant by that. Mm-hmm. But after I did it, it with, with their help, because Lord knows I didn't know the first thing about putting on makeup or, or you know, all hair, whatever, you name it, I had to at some point come to an understanding that for me, Gender, it, it, gender, a lot of people say gender is a drag, right? It's, it's performance. 
in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but it is also part of how we identify and how we express ourselves. And it was through that creative process that I had to figure out how I could best express myself and be myself and accept myself even if everything around me is telling me that I'm screwed up. Hmm. You know, and it, it's sort of like, yeah, it's how to find and what's right with you and to be right with you. Because then, you know, when you wake up and you go to sleep, bottom line, that's who you're with, you know. Um, I was listening to, you know, how, how, you know, how Lizzo has a song, I'm going to be my own soulmate. And really, and that's what you have to be. You have to be your own soulmate because people don't understand or you can't really always have to be trying to explain exactly, well, today I'm this, you know. Do you find that, that, that there is that part? Are you still, do you find the need to still explain? Because I know people who in the community, when you go, when you talk about someone who's, when you say, well, the gender fluid or non-binary, and you have people going, well, you know, people just need to make up their mind. Or if you say that you're queer, I've had women, when you say queer, they go like, why can't you say lesbian? Well, you know, it's more complicated. It's more nuanced than that. As a society, you know, not, and okay, as a community, but then also the greater society, are, are people starting to get that it's more nuanced than just, you know, pink or blue at birth? You know, I, I'm hoping so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so at the same time, when I see the news of gender reveal parties. Oh, God, please, you know. <laughs> I know, really. I mean, you know, don't get me going on it. That's one of my pet peeves. I cannot <laughs> stand that. Um, uh, yeah, it, put it, them it, in a box before they get here, you know. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like. And, and, I, and I, I get the sensation people want to celebrate a birth, and 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 it's like, please, yes, by all means, celebrate a birth. Though, allow birth to happen, and allow who that is birthed, the child, mm-hmm. to grow, and to. Experience this world with a fresh pair of eyes or a fresh mm-hmm. pair of senses, whatever means by which that child is able to experience this life and be able to grow into their own self. Of course, with the guidance of steady hands from parents and guardians to care. Though it's mm-hmm. like, golly, do we need men wrestling a watermelon out of a gator's mouth that when you crack open the watermelon (laughs) deep in the inside is a pink or a blue ribbon that he doesn't know which color it is, but when he gets it, oh, my God, it's a boy. Yes. Thank you. It's a boy. And I'm like, like, stories like that literally exist. And I'm like, does it take all of that? Mm-hmm. It doesn't take all of that. It doesn't. You know? Mm-hmm. You so, know, and I think it's, you know, sometimes, and also, you know, what really gets me is when it's a member of the LGBTQ community 
And rather than breaking the norm, you see them go into very heteronormative things, and they're doing it too. And I'm going like, you fought all these years to be accepted for you, and here this little one, you're, you know, dressing them up to, to fit a gender role. Yeah, it, you see, it's go ahead. Yeah. Uh, it, it really is, you know. It and 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 just one of the things that you know, I, I think that at least the conversation is starting about gender reveal parties, what they mean. Okay. I, I think what what we're seeing from that is, especially with a lot of what's going on in terms of, you know, violence in society, harassment issues, et cetera, a deep questioning of what does it mean in today's society to be a man or a woman and what, what experiences line up with that. And there's so many things that about, oh, there's a crisis in masculinity or, Feminism is an attack on men, it, and it, it it's also often framed in this very binary way that just obscures the entire point of what it means to have some freedom along the lines of gender for everybody along all different parts of the spectrum, because we can't again looking at it in that very kind of narrow frame of it's, it's just fixed. Mm-hmm. They're not thinking about all the other different identities and experiences of life that intersect with being a man or a woman or being some bit of a mix. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's such potential for us to help humanity grow, you know, that, you know, it just like, I I would just want to say, don't try to emulate, you know, a heterosexual, I mean, that has gotten us into so many trouble. I mean, let's, let's be more open. Let's have a child and you're more concerned about the child being kind, being empathetic, being able to think critically than to be able to, you know, play with Barbie or GI Joe, you know, I mean, these are these are really important things in time. As you go through, and one of the things that I love, I love your pictures. I love, you know, you are so comfortable. You had on, it was a necktie and a black frock. I thought you looked fabulous. and Thank But, you. you know, you were just, like, comfortable. And you talk about how going through drag to where now, you wear what you want. You wear what, what you feel good about that day. You put it on, you, you, and you go on about. How did you, did you, did you find it as a natural going through the drag thing to help you get to the point to where now, hey, I'm just going to get up and go to work, and this is what I'm wearing? It took a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it took a minute. And... The large part of why is because I saw what was done within our community along the lines of gender from around the time I started college. 
And to be more specific, I'm talking about how the trans community was sold out on the Employment Non-Discrimination Act mm-hmm. and how that effort ended up failing and left an entire segment of our broader community feeling rightfully scorned and excluded, and it disgusted me, though it also made it very real, hey, guess what? You coming to work as yourself in this country means that you can be fired and lose mm-hmm. your livelihood. And I, and I know that that's happened for so many people, people that I, that I, that I know now, or even knew then, and, and, and that message that it sent was that not only are you not considered equally human and loved outside of your community, you also have to deal with that stuff in the community. And I'm not, let me be very careful here. I'm not equating being non-binary, being trans, because there oh, no. are distinct experiences that do overlap because mm-hmm. there are some non-binary trans folks, though in speaking more broadly about gender liberation as part of the LGBT community focus on both gender and sexuality liberation. That being lost in that moment for me was just like, all right, I have to think about what is going to allow me to continue moving in my career without giving them another, by them I mean the powers that be, mm-hmm. most of them who don't get it, another reason. So I was scared even in college about pictures of me and drag showing up on Facebook because I didn't want to risk anybody in management of any company I would ever enter for or work for to see that. And, and now this is the last thing I'll say on that point. Funny enough, my first full-time job after college, it was actually around this time seven years ago now I think about it. It was a few months into that job. And it was a place that I had interned at the last summer before I finished college. It turns out one of the people who would end up becoming one of my coworkers, you know, was a level or two above me. At one point during like a, an informal moment was like, question for you. Were you ever at the drag show at Northwestern? And you perform under this name. I'm like, oh, my God. Were you there? <laughs> like, yeah. I went with a friend of mine. I said, oh, God. Because they, they, mm-hmm. they did off, they did off, I think, usually like, at least every year, like, brought in a professional drag performer, whether they were known locally or nationally in, to perform a number or two during that show. So people would come to the show just from around if they heard about it. So here I am scared that somebody that I could possibly work with sees it, and they saw it anyway. Mm-hmm. So when I go back and tell my friends who helped me get into that kind of persona, they clowned me. They were all laughing. They're like, <laughs> you, they, they're like, you were also adamant about, oh, no photos of me. No, I don't mm-hmm. want any photos on Facebook. Don't tag me, this and that. And they're like, the one person saw it was the person that was Sam. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. Black. And that's not that. Wow. Yeah. Like you said, you know, out. <laughs> well, you know, now, 
that you are you see the contradiction that you live in a city that has elected a black lesbian, okay, and who was elected on the same day that we had LGBTQ people sitting in front of Congress talking about why we needed an Equality Act, and that although you've got that in your home city, that if for some reason you went to go somewhere else to get a job, in 30, I believe it's 30 states, you could be fired if someone came across that picture of you in drag. Do you, I mean, does that contradiction ever hit you? And how do you wrap your head around that? And how do you try to make that point to other people so that they get what we need to be doing? Yeah, and, 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 and speaking of drag, like, they're, they're, my friends are trying to bring, bring, <laughs> bring my drag performer alter ego out of retirement for their uh-huh. birthdays this coming year. And I'm like, I don't know, y'all. It's been a minute. Um, but at the same time, like, these are friends of mine who understand that for me, it's my identity isn't because I did drag. That mm-hmm. that was Der- Der- Derek was still there all along. I just moved through a creative process in a in a in a, within a community that allowed me to better express on my own terms how my gender is and how I share that. Mm-hmm. because I feel as though when I walk out the door in the morning and I wear a suit, a conventional male suit, so to speak. Of course, there are pants, suits, we call them for women, but a suit, just generally speaking, mm-hmm. because clothes don't have gender. It's a suit. Mm-hmm. I'm presenting myself in a way that I want the world to see me, just as I would when I wear a jumpsuit, you know, or a, a romper, or a frock, or mm-hmm. a caftan, and and having to explain why, you know, on a certain day it may have not been easy to do that because maybe I had to think about safety planning. Am I going to be mm-hmm. on public transit and encounter somebody who street harasses me? Am I going to be gawked at? every place where I turn. And the the day that I think the picture you mentioned seeing recently, that happened that day. It was everywhere I turned. It was a look, a look, a look. Because, Mm -hmm. oh, my God, look at this six-foot-two, football-built, bearded person walking around in a feminine garment. So to bring it back to like employment and stuff it's like yeah it it, it it it's real for me all the time that while I do work in a city where yes there is an LGBT mayor that you know is elected that is presiding where there is at least on the state level laws that protect LGBT folks that that's not reality nationwide and also just because the law is on the books doesn't mean the employers won't break it. 
Mm-hmm. So it also, I think, matters where we work and what the values are and how we feel. Because a place can say it all day long that we welcome folks. They, they, they folks, they said for generations, black folks, you know, we are wel- you're welcome, extend money on advertising dollars, try to make it seem like they're friends of the black community, but then you realize they're behind some of the same policies that are screwing black folks over. So it's like, what is it really? So it's taken me time to find places and spaces where I feel as though I can bring my full self. And I think we have a long way to go before we can say that about many spaces. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's so true. Well, with that, we're going to take our second break, and we're going to circle back to writing. So we'll I'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Derek, you said you had stepped away. You know, you, you needed a moment away from writing, and, and you're back. Um, at the Esteem Award, uh, Phil said that you were working on a memoir. Are you still to help? And is it at helping readers understand the uniquely beautiful yet turbulent coming-of-age experiences for queer and gender variant people of color. Are you still working on that memoir? I am. (laughs) It's one of those things where, how do I say this? And and I've been intentional about saying that I'm working on this for several years now Uh because I, I don't believe in writing for the sake of just, oh, I have, I have to absolutely have to publish a book. It's on my checklist. Uh-huh. I have to push it out there. I mean, very, like, when I started my career in journalism, like, my professional career some five or so years ago, there were some moments where I would get, you know, my desk knocked on by others being like, hey, we need that piece in. Because uh-huh. I wanted to be very thoughtful and intentional about what it is I was putting out and making sure it was right, not only for the fact that my byline was on it, but also because I wanted to make sure it was something that was going to help people. And sometimes I feel as though ideas need to marinate for a bit 
mm-hmm. so that when the timing is right, and so, so many things are about timing, when the timing is right that I'm putting out a message and work that will last beyond a moment, mm-hmm. that it's work that will hopefully and I say this with as much humility as possible, work that will, that some kid who may be in the same shoes as I was 40 years down the line can pick up that book and find something in it that helps feed them. Mm -hmm. So I'm still working on it, and it's Mm -hmm. going to take more of an essay form. It's not going to be a long bit about me and my own experience, but mm-hmm. it's going to draw on various different cultural trends and issues where there are elements of my story that can be included to help bring the point home, but it won't be all about me. Mm-hmm. Well, as you navigate the varying spaces. When when you're at work, you just came back from a conference and you're navigating it as yourself and you have interactions with people. Do you feel that, does it open a doorway to conversations about being gender fluid and recognizing these stories that there are people who are non-binary to maybe so that if someone else is reporting on something, that they will look at it perhaps differently, I mean, and not immediately want to put people in boxes. I mean, I think, like, we still see when we talk about many people in the trans community, when they're killed, they get misgendered. Or you have people who get in front of the camera and they talk very stereotypically about, gays and lesbians and or they'll see someone and even like in schools or they're going in those settings where they're talking to it not recognizing this spectrum of gender fluidity do you find that you're able to engage people and are you hearing people i mean because many of these people who are in journalism and often journalism is telling our stories in very various ways are you able to engage people where probably wait for your memoir, but maybe it's going to change their perception and how they report, talk about, write about people? You know, it, it's, it's, it's gotten to the point for me where I, I try to allow my life to tell that story uh-huh. by just living. Uh-huh. And that hopefully that in itself can be a conversation starter or maybe prompt someone to think, even if they don't necessarily tell me, hey, when we were at a certain event and I saw you wearing, you know, that opal necklace, pair of black loafers and a (laughs) a blue frock, Uh that I didn't pause for a moment and think, wow, there's 
there are people who live and move through the world in this manner, and it's not reduced. When I even say reduced, it's not seen as a joke or as an act or as something to make fun of. This is this is real life. I may not ever know, and I don't think any of us will ever know the power that we have to change other folks' minds just by living, or at least prompt them to think. So whether it's an article that I write or an opinion piece or a tweet or even just a photo or a passing conversation, I feel as though those tiny steps help bring people along even if, like you mentioned, they may not be ready to read at length about that experience. Maybe they'll get there one day. But something that I've had to personally learn to be patient about is where people are at in their journey and recognize that maybe, maybe it's, maybe I'm not the voice they need to hear right now. Uh Maybe there's another voice they, or a few they may need to hear or something they need to see before they can understand me. And that's okay. You know, it is. Yeah. But I'm hoping that somehow in the encounters we have that the ice melts. Well, you know, because I I think that there, and, you know, I love what's happening when you see how younger people are are exploring and think about it. You know, we talk about, oh, the kids who are coming out. Because often in some of the people who I've talked to, you know, and I'll go like, well, when did you know you were gay? When did you know you were lesbian? When did you know you were trans? When did you know you were different? When did you know your your path was going to be different? And many of them will go back and say it was at a very early age, but because they never saw anyone that gave them any moment to think that they were okay, they just like sort of kept it inside, kept it inside. And, you know, to where almost like there, some of them, I, I mean, I mean, I've met people who talk to people who were like, I talked to this one lady who was in her 70s, and she was saying, like, how she went, like, till she was in her 30s and going through all this kind of stuff, which wasn't very happy, and being in relationships that weren't real and stuff before she sort of said, started to meet people who looked like her and recognize that, you know, and read about things. Do you ever, you know... Are you aware of it? Does it ever cross your mind, you know, not, you know, that, oh, I'm intentionally walking down here today in my caftan, and some little, you know, person is going to see that and say, I can wear a caftan too. But, I mean, are you aware, though, that sometimes that there are eyes on you that you might be the first person that they see that says to them, you're okay. I'm okay. If Derek can walk, you know, bravely, down here and faces, you know, you, yeah, like you said, sometimes it can be like sort of having everybody gawk on you, but but you still did it and did what you were going to, went to work, that maybe that, that you have that influence on people. It's not direct, but you do have that influence. You know, it's what you just said 
reminds me of, and I know she's running for president right now. So it's not an endorsement, though. There's, of course, <laughs> that one Mary Ann Williamson quote that is harped on in, in a beautiful way in the movie Aquila and the Bee with uh, Kiki Palmer, Lawrence Fishburne, Angela Bassett, and they're getting her ready for the spelling bee, and, you know, it's that tale of being the underdog to go into the big stage and, you know, being so much more than people thought you could be or limited you and put you in a box of being. And in that quote, in talking about how when we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same, and that is we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. I 100% believe that, you know, just by virtue of living and being that, and, and I often heard, hear this thing saying in church, that, that's, how I, that's how I was raised. If I can help just one somebody, then my living is oh. not in vain. Mm-hmm. I truly believe that. That's amazing that you say that. That was, okay, we were raised like Catholic, but my mother had a, was, not, was not raised Catholic, but when, you know, my father wanted to go that way, she was it. But she would often sing that song. And there mm-hmm. are moments when, just like what you're saying, I remember that. And when you said that line, it was like, you know, I, I totally understand what you mean. Yeah. Uh, I totally get what you mean, that, that, I think that all of these things that you went through and the fact that, you know, you're still here. Yeah, many people would have gone to Northwestern and looked at, at that class ratio and gone, like, forget this, you know. Many people would have, would have said, well, you know, this is the easy way for me to do it. But you didn't, and you continue and you continue and you continue to move forward. And so in that way, you know, although the esteem award is really cool, I've got one, you know, but even if you didn't have that esteem award, you know that your life has not been in vain. But I think circling back to that esteem award, that's part of, like you initially said, to have your community recognize what you've done and recognize you and to get that from that that's part of that affirmation, you know, more so than any of this other stuff. Uh, what are you up to these days? Well, these days, um, I'm, <laughs> like I'm still in the fight, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, doing what I can as an individual to continue sharing my story, uh-huh. but also sharing whatever platform I have access to so that other stories can be told too, because my story isn't the only one that deserves to be told, or, and, and, it, and it most certainly isn't the only one that ever be told. So I only have one experience of being me or 
being in any one of these identities. So for me, it's been a time of continuing to write and doing more of that in my spare time. And in full time, I have been working doing communications for a investigative journalist nonprofit that is doing the work of unearthing and digging deep into abuses of power mm-hmm. and allowing the facts to, to shine a light. And, and, and I can't stress enough how important that is, and especially in a time where, and, and this has been the case for at least the last decade, ever since I started college. I mean, the first day of college, or first weeks of it, I should say, months, newspapers are shutting down, left and right, mm-hmm. jobs are being cut. I ran away from any idea of doing media work because the seeing that and it was a professor who kept it real, real in, in an intro class and said, look, they're not hiring like they used to. They'll learn how to use this Twitter, this Facebook, monetize the ball, do what you got to do because the, the industry is different. And that, that, that ain't never lied. <laughs> but, uh-huh. Uh-huh. but now being in it at this particular time when you have people – in this country who are doing this work be threatened, who are targeted for harassment, who are picked upon and bullied by the most powerful people. I mean, it's a tale of the time, but it's different now that it's, there's so much, so many economic pressures on this and on the industry. Newsrooms are unionizing. Freelancers are demanding to be paid on time. Uh-huh. So I'm doing what I can to stay in the fight and to continue writing. And hopefully in doing so, I'm helping somebody. Now, you know, and it is true, part of you know, when, you, when you started out back in, back in the day, you know, when you, we did a lot more reading to where now – Many people are using social media and they're using Twitter and all like that. How, you know, you're, you're from your professional perspective, how do we help people? How would you tell them to use this but still be able to think critically about what they're seeing? And not only, what would be your message particularly about using media I mean, I hear so. I hear many people who are in the LGBTQ community, and they they read these things, and they're like, some of them are fearful. How should we be looking at using media, promoting mediums that will will tell our stories, that will empower us? First and foremost. We have to find ways within our own means to support organizations that are doing work that feeds us on a constant basis. And, that, and that, that's not only 
the, the big national organizations that take news subscriptions, that includes okay. the local newspaper. That includes the local news website. That includes your favorite podcast. Hello, audience. Um, <laughs> but seriously, like, if we're in a time where in order for folks to access veritable information, because information is out here, including some misinformation and some quote-unquote alternative facts that are actually alternative, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't even mm-hmm. like that phrase, alternative facts. The facts are facts, but you know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. we have to, we we have to help each other weed out that which ain't real, and say, hey, you shared that on Facebook. That came from some robot site, and by robot, I'm not demeaning robots. I'm just saying, like somebody constructed a, a robot meant to put out bad information, and you fell for the okie doke. Unshare that. And Uh have people say, hey, this is how you can read a news article and make sense of it and use that to write a letter to your elected official, to organize with your local groups, to talk about with your friends, to think about how you want to be active and in your own way, be part of making change. And media has a powerful way of doing that, but we have to make sure we're supporting it. Mm-hmm. Well, Derek, first of all, I have to thank you because, you know, I, you know, Phil Esteem always jokes because he says, you come in there. You Sometimes I come in there just for that day. That time I came in for extra day. <laughs> but, but I came running into the Esteem Awards and one of the first faces I saw was yours. And it, it made me happy. And I enjoyed talking to you from the moment I met you. I said, oh, this is somebody I want to stay in touch with. I want to know what he's doing. Uh, and, you know, and, and keep in my life. And I appreciate you taking the time to be with me tonight. I look forward to seeing you next time when I'm in Chicago. We're going to do dinner or something spend more time talking. I would love that. And and, and just just to just to say thank you for sharing your space and time with me because it's I think about this quote at the end of the help and that movie is fraught. God knows it's fraught, but that quote from Abilene in the movie where she's like, No one ever asked what it's like to be me. But once I told the truth about that, I felt free. And it's not often that as a black LGBTQ person, someone just sits and asks, what is it like to be you? Let alone someone who can understand deeply what that must feel like. So I I thank you too for being that light in my life and, and for this space to speak freely and and to not have to defend my humanity but just to feel it. Yeah. You got me, dude. <laughs> I'll tell you, as Phil will tell you, you know, 
when we first met, I don't think that he would ever, and I don't know how many years it's been, but he said, you know what, I can always count on you. And I said, you know what, because you got me. So now you've got me. (laughs) You've got me. Okay. Well, look, I'm going to let you go, but I thank you again. Go drink some orange juice and get some rest and feel better. (laughs) Okay? I will. I want to thank today's guest, award-winning writer, commentator, and speaker, Derek Clifton. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening. <laughs>